Holy Gospel according to John, the 14th chapter. Jesus said to the disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. This is the gospel of the Lord. be seated. Let's pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in college, I repeatedly stumbled on one of the most empty and confusing moments that I have experienced thus far in life. It's the week when finals were finally over and done. Any student might be able to appreciate that particular moment, the weeks, the months, really, of pent-up pressure and expectation, and on the day when finals ends, it all just sort of comes screeching to a halt. And I'd be steeped in this sort of mystifying hollowness. I would especially have trouble falling asleep and figuring out what to do, and I would waste all of my time trying to think of something to actually do now that I didn't have all of the school. But this didn't last too long. I would soon find myself wrapped up like I do in a video game or a book or in making time to actually hang out with friends. But still, it left me with this lasting feeling of unsettledness, especially because I began to notice a pattern happen over and over again after each exam cycle. Now, maybe you felt something similar from your school days. Maybe that's where you're at right now. I think our college students are just finishing up with exam times. Maybe even in your professional life, you have that rhythm. Deadlines, presentations, lasting projects. I still lose a little bit of my traction after each one passes. You guys should see me on Monday morning at our staff meeting. I've noticed that I tend to ask myself during these times, what was it really all for anyways? All of that work and stress and pressure, what did I actually get out of it? And so I was thinking this morning of a scene from one of my favorite 90s films, a classic Jack Nicholson films. Jack Nicholson walks out of a therapist's office into a crowded room full of people waiting for therapy, and he looks around and he goes, is this as good as it gets? Didn't get to laugh at 927. <laughs> when I ex what I experienced each time the semester ended 
was the discovery that maybe what I was investing in ultimately wasn't as rich or full or whole as I thought it was going to be. I mean, to be sure, it wasn't completely meaningless. Education is good, stay in school. But it wasn't everything I wanted it to be. It was a bit hollow. Now, the insight that I want to reverse engineer from this experience is a common conclusion that is often drawn by philosophers and theologians and social scientists alike. It's that to be human is to search for meaning, even and especially in the midst of our work and our study and our play. You see, we humans are meaning-making agents, social animals, storytelling creatures. We seek purpose. We find our way in the world by telling stories, creating meaning and significance. This is why things like books and films and games continue to have such an enduring significance across time, across cultures. We're all just trying to figure out who we are, what all of this is for anyways. So it seems we have this universal need for fulfillment. We have this deep and abiding hunger for significance. We also have, as some theologians have called it across the ages, as St. Paul recognizes to those Athenians in our first reading for today, we have this spark of religiousness within us. To find our meaning, we tend to look above, beyond ourselves. We end up at religion, spirituality. Even those who claim no God, I would argue, and have argued with them, are religious. You see, they ritualize their strong convi conviction that there's nothing present, uh, there, there is nothing but the present and material, and they ritualize it usually by telling people over and over that this is what they think. They come to worship it in their own way. And so with this, I want to arrive at our first reading today from the Acts of the Apostles. And a couple verses before this, uh, the author of Acts sets the scene. He says this in Acts 17, 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is important. For a rare moment in his missionary journeys, Paul is alone, waiting for companions to join him. He's just been tossed out of two separate cities consecutively. And the good Jewish scholar he is, he becomes intensely fraught as he walks those streets of Athens over the abundance of idols. You see, idolatry, the, the worship of other gods, I'll remind you, is pretty much the chief sin of the Old Testament. Go back and look at the first two commandments. Have no other gods. And I would argue that even in the New Testament, this is one of the enduring problems. In Paul, Paul is so frustrated and so incensed because he knows that what we worship, what draws us in, what we center ourselves around, that matters. The idols we have in our lives shape who we become, how we live, what we say and do. Athens was a rich, 
was a city with a rich and philosophical and religious heritage. The people of Athens in the ancient world were known for trying consistently across the years to find that meaning, to seek out the truth. We get the two great philosophical giants of the Western world, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. We think of the enduring stories of the Greek pantheon of God, Zeus and Hercules and all those other ones. And we see Paul mystified in the middle of that culture walking around those streets. He was made to come to the Areopagus, the city council, just steps away from the big Athenian Parthenon, a temple to the goddess of wisdom, Athena. The Athenians, Paul notes, were exceedingly spiritual even dedicating an altar to the unknown God. Those Athenians, they wanted to cover all the bases, even those ones that they might not have known about. But even surrounded by all that wisdom and all of those gods, something for them was still off. It didn't seem to be enough. There might have been something like that hollowness in the midst of it all that I described before. I mean, maybe there was still a God out there who they didn't know about, who was above, beyond those they knew. And it's here that Paul finds his opportunity to speak Christ's message. But before we get to that, I want to sit for a second at this scene. I want to rest there for a second because I want to recognize that we all have our own idols, don't we? I mean, maybe today I should use the word influencers, as my teenagers probably cringe at that. They're waving at me. The point is this. We are all following something, someone around. And so the question that we should constantly be asking ourselves is who or what is leading us? Things like cultural conceptions of success, wealth, power, influence, the good life, happiness. There are many idols out there, each with their own influencers and heroes. And so regardless of whether we want them to or not, those idols out there, their messages can begin to seep into our minds. They can come to exert a control over our hearts. And so it becomes such that as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian who lived in the early part of the 20th century, recognized in the 30s, when the Germany was coming under the influence of Hitler, he recognized that sometimes we can't even trust our own consciences. They can trick us. He writes this quote in a lecture series that he gave on the book of Genesis in 1932. Conscience chases humankind away from God into its secure hiding place. Conscience is not the voice of God within sinful human beings. Instead, it is precisely their defense against God's voice. Interesting. We usually think of conscience as the thing that we should follow and that leads and guides us. But this is your reminder that the voice inside your head, 
that voice isn't always God. There are other voices too. That's what makes idolatry so dangerous. It tempts us time and time again to hide ourselves away from God, to fill that hole that we all have within us with an abundance of stuff, none of which at the end of the day satisfies. I'll remind you, if you think back to your biblical stories, about the first one in the garden after the fall. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They hid themselves. They hid themselves away from one another. They hid themselves away from God. We follow the same pattern. We hide ourselves behind our idols. We lie to ourselves and tell us that these things, all the idols that I mentioned before and more, can fill us up, can bring us peace and wholeness. And yet, there's still a sense of restlessness that's deep in our culture. You see, the rampant materialism, the busyness of our pace of life as 21st century Americans, continues to testify that these things don't fill us up. We're all still searching for the unknown God out there that can fill that hole that we can't ever really seem to find. Into this search, St. Paul inserts the good news of the gospel. And he does so to the Athenians using their own words. He writes that God, or he speaks that God is not far from each of us. If we look at our gospel text today, we can see, uh, see Jesus saying the same thing to us and to his disciples. We can know God's spirit, God's advocate to us and for us, because God's spirit abides with us, in us. Siblings in Christ, God is with us and in us. Such are the promises Christ leaves us in the gospel. And so all those things out there, all those things vying for your time and attention and energy and resources, we can find that they gain their power and their influence by warping our consciences, by convincing you that you are not enough, that you've got to do more and more, that you can't stop and rest and actually enjoy life, relationship with one another, relationship with God. They try to convince us that God's promises for us, promises that we heard in remembering our baptism, promises of forgiveness and grace and love, those things can't possibly be real or true. All these things can gang up on us and begin to convince us that we need to hide ourselves away from God, even if we don't want to recognize ourselves doing it. Well, I'll come back to church when I have kids or when I get my life together. And so we need to learn how to distinguish the voices of those things that influence us to hide away from God on one hand, we need to distinguish those from the call and promise of the advocate to us and with us. God's spirit calling us back to right relationship with God, with one another, echoing within us a timeless and constant rhythm of the depth and breadth 
of God's love for us, for you. And so as you go out today, I want you to consider this. What are those voices? What are those influences in your life that are keeping you from relationship with God, from relationship with one another? What are those voices in your life that are beating that rhythm of God's love, that are calling you back? Follow those voices. This might seem especially important today for our graduating seniors who are about to enter into adulthood and embark on what I'm going to call a journey of self-discovery out in the world. Two of the strongest voices that pull us away from faith, especially in our young adulthoods, I would know, are these. The voices telling us on one hand that our faith is irrational, and another voice on the other hand telling us that our faith doesn't really matter. It doesn't really make a difference. Both of those voices are lying to us. You see, we have a faith with a rich intellectual heritage. Comparison, the dominant belief in our culture today, empiricism, this idea that humans can derive ultimate meaning and truth based on our senses and perception, that idea, while it has only been, always been around in some form, has really only taken its dominance about 400 years ago. It's much, much younger than the idea of faith that's across cultures and generations and geography. So while it does have some truth to it and has certainly brought us a lot of progress, which I am grateful for, it doesn't testify to the full truth. If you pull away the layers of empiricism, you'll find a leap of faith that is as irrational as any of the claims we make at church. It's this, that human perception and intellect in the first place is even capable of grasping truth in its entirety. Case in point, think about all those in times when you have encountered a human. Maybe the human has even been you who has thought and been convinced that they were right, but has turned out to be surprisingly and disastrously, in some cases, wrong. We can't always figure it out on our own. The second voice, the one that's more dangerous, is that faith doesn't matter for our lives, that we don't need to make space for it. As proof that this voice is a lie, I offer you this the stories and the faces of those sitting next to you. Finding God can be as simple, sometimes as complicated as this. Learning to listen for God in the voices, in the stories, in the lives of our neighbors, in the witness of the church that's endured across the ages. Our faith can make a difference in your lives. It's made a difference in the lives of everyone here. It can transform our world. So I'll leave you this morning by returning again to this point. This hunger that we have within us, this spiritual need for fulfillment, we all try and fill it with something. We've all got those idols out there, whether we know it 
whether we want to face them or not. The thing about the faith we share, unlikely as improbable as it may seem, it's that, is that it's one of the only things out there that can bring us peace, that can fill us up, bring us wholeness. When we put those voices in our head, the ones convincing us to hide away, the ones convincing us that we're not enough, when we put those voices on pause, when we stop hitting the snooze button and finally turn them off, in that still small space that remains, we can find the spirit of God within us and all around us, reminding us time and time again, even and especially of all of the voices that work to distract us, that God loves us. God loves you. Each of you is fearfully and wonderfully made. And we are called to share that love with a world full of those voices telling people otherwise. A world in desperate, desperate need of finding God. Amen.